You can find it in your pew Bible on page 23. It's really great going through Genesis because we're always in the, the very beginning of the Bible. It's not like page 824. It's, it's just page 10 or page 11 or page 23. So it's really easy to find. Page 23, Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. And it's a good amount of text, so we'll just stay seated as I read. Genesis 39, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, Over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph And said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love 
and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's our tradition to uh, take a moment and silently reflect on the Lord's word before the sermon. Let's do that right now. You'll have to excuse me because I sang so many Christmas carols this week that I totally lost my voice, it seems like. So, if I sound like a heavy metal singer, that's why. So there's a story about John Wesley. Most of you know who John Wesley is. He's this famous evangelist. Really like one of the spiritual giants of the 18th century. That's the 1700s, uh, for those of you who are keeping track. So John Wesley, the spiritual giant, this great evangelist, preached over 40,000 sermons, some say. Rode on horseback. Started the Methodist church. So there's a story about this guy, John Wesley, how during his last moments, while he's on his deathbed, he gave a final sermon to some of his friends that were gathered there. So he's sitting on his deathbed, I mean, you know, in and out of consciousness, and he's sitting there, and his, and his friends and his family were gathered around, and he starts whispering something with, with, with his final moments of strength. And he said, these words start coming out of his lips, and people are leaning in, and they're going, well, what's he saying? John, what, what's John Wesley saying? We've we got to hear it. It's some special message. We've got to write this down. You know, someone write this down. And so they lean in. And he starts whispering, he says, the best of all is. And they go, yes, what's the best of all, John Wesley? What what is it? What's the best of all? Tell us, tell us. And he says, the best of all is God with us. And everyone goes, what? The best of all is God with us? What does that mean? Is that that your final sermon? And, And then it says, this is what it says in his biography, almost, uh, as if to just drive home the faithfulness of God and to comfort his friends, he's laying down in bed and he lifts his arm up in like one of those brave heart salutes. You know what I'm talking about? Just his fist is up in the air, fist pumping, laying in bed. His, his dying arm is raised up and he says, 
Once again, the best of all is God with us. And so that was the sermon. The best of all. The best possible thing of all. The thing that he wanted his friends to remember. The thing that he thought would comfort his friends and family most of all in their time of trouble. In their time of grief. In their time of sorrow. Was this idea that God was with us. That was the best promise in the whole Bible. According to John Wesley. And that's what we celebrate at this time of the year, during Christmas time, isn't it? That's what the angel said to Mary. He said that you, you will have a child. And what will we call your child? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God will be with you in this special, special way. And so what does it look like for God to be with us? What does it feel like? For God to be with us. How does God act towards us when God is with us? Well, if you ask people on the street, I think they might say, well, if God is with me, if I'm really like tracking with God, I'm going to feel, what do you think? Like inner peace. Definitely. I mean, health, peace. I'm going to feel centered. You know, I'm going to feel like I just had like a three hour yoga class and five massages. That's what's going to be. I'm just going to feel great. Everything's going to be going well for me. No stress, right? That's what it feels like for God to be with me. Or you might say, um, people will like me. If God's with me, it's going to give me favor with other people. You know, if you're in uh, elementary school and God's with you, what, it, friends like you, people think you're great, the teacher's already ca- always calling on you in class, maybe, maybe that's what you think God with me looks like. Maybe not teacher calling on you if you don't know the answers. Maybe if God's with you, the teacher doesn't call on you. You're like, God's really with me today. But what does the Bible say that it means for God to be with us? What does it look like when God is with his people? How does God operate when he is with us? Now, I think that's the question that Moses is trying to answer by putting this chapter in the Bible. Remember, this is the book of Genesis is Mo, Moses's kind of sermon to the Israelites as they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And it's, it's Moses just giving them these foundational truths about what the world is like, what God is like, what life with God is like. And so he's teaching them these lessons. And I think especially this chapter just it, it tells us so clearly what it looks like For God to be with his people. For God to bless his people. Because that's a theme throughout the whole book of Genesis. Remember, it's part of the covenant blessing of God. When God comes to Abraham, what does he say to Abraham? He says, I'll bless you. I'll be your shield and your great reward. And he says, Abraham, I'll be with you. I'll be your God and your people will be my people. I'll be with you. I'll be be close to you. I'll be on your team. That's what he says to his people, Israel. I'll be on your team. I'll be in your corner. I'll fight for you. I'll protect you. And I was thinking about that. I thought, you know what that sounds like? Being in your corner, fighting for you, protecting you, sticking with you. That sounds like a marriage vow, doesn't it? I mean, that's the closest thing that we have in our culture today to what a covenant is in the Bible. You know, we have cell phone contracts and all things like that. But that's just kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? If, if I pay you this money, then you're going to give me internet service and like horrible customer service. That's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> but in a covenant, 
You're not just agreeing to give someone something so they'll do something for you. In a covenant, you're pledging yourself to that person to be linked to them in a way that you can't be disconnected without doing great violence to the covenant. And that's what a marriage covenant's like. And what do we say in a marriage covenant? I mean, the husband says to the wife, Brandon, where's Brandon and Aaron? They're going to get married here in like seven days. Okay, so in five days, you're going to have to say these words probably. So the husband says to the wife, I covenant and I promise to be your husband for richer and in health. No, he doesn't say that, right? What does he say? I promise and I covenant to be your faithful husband. What? In sickness and in health. For richer or for what? Poorer. Till death do us part. And that's what the promise of God is like. To be with us. To be our covenant Lord. To be in our corner. To be our teammate. To be for us through good times and bad. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. That God promises to remain with us. And I think that's what we're going to see in this chapter. We're going to see that God is with his people. God's presence stays with his people. And God's presence keeps his people through success and through suffering. God is present with his people through prosperity and in the middle of pain. So let's look at this. First, we'll see that that God is with his people in prosperity. God is present with his people. Let's look. See, uh, right here in the beginning of uh, chapter 39, verse 1, it kind of summarizes where Joseph is. So Joseph, uh, back in chapter 37, we, we skipped over it, but Joseph was the favorite son of his father Jacob. You remember who Jacob was? Jacob wrestled with God and he got a new nickname, Israel. And then Jacob, God blessed Jacob, and he had 12 sons, he had one daughter, and he had a favorite son, and his name was Joseph. But Jacob loved Joseph so much that all his brothers became jealous. And so Joseph's brothers conspired to fake Joseph's death and sell him into slavery. And so you're thinking, already, wow, Jacob's family is really screwed up. It's like soap opera screwed up. I mean, Jacob's family, okay, he had 12 sons, one daughter, four different women. And they're all kind of fighting and jockeying for position. So this is like a classic, just dysfunctional family. And not only that, they're supposed to be God's people. God's brought them into the promised land, but they're not following God. They're just running after their own desires. And in fact, they look exactly like the people that they're called to minister to. They're starting to live just like the Canaanites. And so what God does is sovereignly he takes Joseph out of the family and he brings him into Egypt. And that's what we see here in verse 1. That Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and he was purchased, because he's a slave, by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So there in Egypt, while he was in slavery, what does it say in chapter 2? After he's been bought, he's in Potiphar's house. What happens? God is with Joseph. The Lord, it says, was with Joseph. And what was the result? The Lord is with Joseph and he prospers. 
He becomes successful. It says he became a successful man, which means he got things done. They gave him work to do, and he got the work done, and he got it done quickly, and he got the work done well. He becomes trustworthy, effective. He becomes helpful. Uh, When someone gives him a task to do, they think, if Joseph is on this, it's going to get done. I'm not even worrying about it. And so, of course, what happens is he kind of rises in stature in Potiphar, the Egyptian's house. People start, Joseph starts getting a good reputation. So he starts not just being successful in work, but also he starts getting recognized by other people. And uh, especially recognized by his master. So he's kind of like rising in station. And not only that, the text tells us that as God blesses Joseph, blessing flows out to everyone that's connected to him. This is kind of interesting. It says that God blessed Potiphar's house. He blessed the Egyptians who don't give a rip about God. The Egyptians aren't trying to follow God. The Egyptians aren't trying to please God. But God blessed the Egyptians. Why? Not for their sake, but for Joseph's sake. God so blessed Joseph that he said, hey, as long as you keep Joseph in your house, as long as you treat him well, I'll treat you well. It's like having a big brother, you know? In school, the big brother, if, if, you, if you treat my sibling well, we're cool. But if you mess with him, you're going to have to mess with the big brother. So God is saying, hey, if you are cool with Joseph, we'll be cool. And that's, incidentally, that's the way God always planned it to be with his covenant people. That they would be blessed, and then that their being blessed would cause blessing to flow out to people outside the covenant. Remember, he says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the families that follow me, not just the families that believe in me, but through you, Abraham, when I bless you, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. And that's what's happening with Joseph now. So you can see the kind of the the line of promise going through. You can see that, yeah, Joseph is really tracking with the Lord. He's really part of God's covenant people. So Joseph gets favor from Potiphar. And his situation improves even more. He becomes like the personal assistant to Potiphar. And Potiphar is, um, it says he's the captain of the guard. So he's in Pharaoh's um, royal cabinet. He's like the secretary of defense. So he's this really powerful guy in Egypt. He's in charge of the army. And in those times, the army was a pretty big deal because you were always at war. So he's one of the most powerful people in Egypt. And Joseph is his second in command. And Joseph becomes so trustworthy, it says that he makes, Potiphar makes him the overseer of his entire house. Which means that Joseph, as he tells Potiphar's wife, basically has the same living standards as Potiphar. I mean, he's living like a wealthy, powerful man, even though he's a slave. So Joseph, even though he's enslaved, even though he's been taken away from his family, he's rising, people are recognizing him, and now... He's essentially one of the most wealthy people in Egypt. He's part of the 1% in Egypt at the time. By ancient standards, he's doing really, really well, especially for a slave. In a foreign land, that's about as good as you can get. So Joseph, his star is rising. He's getting favor. And you're thinking, this is is like a success story. This is like how to succeed in business without even trying. I mean, Joseph is just doing really, really well. But before you think of this as just a, a manual of how to get ahead in business, or you think of just it's just an example of a really hard worker and, and how, how he rose to power and how to win friends and influence people, 
we have to notice this. Every time the text mentions something remarkable about Joseph's success or his ability, it mentions God's covenant name right alongside it. As if to say, as if to like pull the curtain back and say, yeah, Joseph was successful because the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, because the covenant Lord, Yahweh, was with him. Joseph was blessed because God blessed him. Joseph was prosperous because God prospered him. And so you can see that right behind the scenes, in the midst of his prosperity, God is with him. And it's evident that God is with him. Everyone says, wow, your God is really with you. Now, they don't actually care to know the God that's with him. They just like that God's blessing him. So they say, we'll we'll keep Joseph around. But everyone's taking notice. And the reason it's happening is because of God's faithfulness. And you get the sense when you read this story, just because of how many times the name of the Lord is repeated, that really, who's the main character in the story? Who's the one holding all the strings? Who's the one pulling all the, uh, calling all the shots? It's God. It's the Lord. I mean, his name is mentioned, the word Lord is mentioned more times in this chapter, in this one chapter, than in the whole rest of the story about Joseph. So you can see, really, God's the one who's on the move. God's the one who's in control. And you get the sense that as Joseph is working, Joseph is just thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to do a really good job. I'm going to try really hard to be good at my work. But as he's working, it's God who's upholding him. It's God who's making him successful. That people are looking around and they're seeing Joseph's success, but really, the invisible power of God is the thing that's holding him up. It reminded me of this uh, picture up in Chapel Hill. They have this old tree. And uh, it's like this 300-year-old tree. It's called the Davy Poplar. And there's all these legends about the tree that, you know, if you're dating someone, you sit under the tree and you kiss them, then you'll get married. And, and as long as the tree stands, this is what the legend says, as long as the tree, the Davy Poplar stands, that the university will go really well. So some of you, I'm sure, are like, I'm going to oil my chainsaw when I get home. I'm going to drive up to Chapel Hill and cut down that tree. But, <clears throat> but the, the legend behind this tree is, you know, that as long as the tree stays up, as long as the tree is healthy, the university will be healthy. Hurricane Fran came through in 1996, almost completely devastated the tree. And the tree's still alive, but what they had to do to keep it living was they had to, like, uh, tie wires to it to tie it out to all the other trees and then they filled the inside of the tree with cement so basically you look at this tree and you go oh that's a really pretty old tree and then you realize well actually it's not that impressive because the only thing holding it up is these wires and the cement and you can't see any of it at first glance but then you realize if they took those wires away if they let that cement out of that tree, that thing would come crashing down. Nobody is going to be kissing under that tree if it didn't have the wires and the cement. And that's the way it is with Joseph. If God removed his hand of blessing, Joseph's not going to be able to stand on his own strength. And so Moses is reminding his people, when you do well, when it goes well with you, who's ultimately responsible? It's God. It's the Lord. It's the covenant Lord. And so just a quick point of application for us. When it goes well for you, when it's all ponies and rainbows, as my friend Pete likes to say, 
when you wake up in the morning and you got a good hair day, you know, you, you don't hit any lights on the way to work, you know, um, you get all the food you want in your lunch at school. I mean, everything's going the way that you want it to. Are you thankful to God? Are you grateful? Or do you just take it for granted? Like, yeah, I deserve everything to be this way. Do you, do, you, do you remember God when it goes well for you? Or do you, or do you forget him? Do you see God's hand of blessing behind even your own greatest achievements? Who gets the glory? Is it you or is it God? Now, so up to this point in the story, it seems pretty simple, right? This textbook, if God is with you, God's going to bless you and it's all going to go great. I mean, your, your star is going to rise. People are going to love you. You're going to be successful. It's But it's not that simple, is it? Because there's a whole second half to the chapter. And we know the story of the Bible, don't we? We know the story of the way the Lord works in our own life. That it's just not all that simple, is it? But what we'll see that even though God is present with us in our prosperity, God also promises to be present with his people as he preserves them through pain. And the pain starts to come pretty quickly. Here in chapter 7. Because a new character enters the story. And that's Potiphar's wife. And so up until this point. It's pretty much just been Joseph and God. And they're just rolling. They're tracking together. They're getting it done. And Joseph is becoming a successful man. But then this kind of rogue power enters. And it's Potiphar's wife. And she has different plans for Joseph than God. She's trying to tempt Joseph. To sleep with her. She's trying to tempt Joseph to disobey the Lord. And so the question that you should have as, you, as you're reading this story is, okay, God has said he's going to protect Joseph. God has said he's going to protect his people. He's going to keep his people. And if you read the rest of the chapters before this, you'll see that really all of his brothers have fallen. I mean, the rest of his family is, is really a total wreck. So the question you're asking is, what's going to happen with Joseph? Is he going to fall into temptation too? So you've got the power of Potiphar's wife and you've got the power of God. And they're both tugging on Joseph. So who's going to win? Who's going to win? And I mean, it's so simple. My four-year-old son would know the answer because is anyone more powerful than God? No, no one's more powerful than God. Does God ever make a mistake? No, he never makes a mistake. Can anyone thwart God's purposes? No, no, no. And so the answer is, of course, if God continues to uphold Joseph, Potiphar's wife is not going to succeed. And however, she does do some damage, doesn't she? Look here. So first she goes to him day after day, it says she constantly tempts him. And so she's she's trying to wear him away. It's a war of attrition. She's saying, just come on, Joseph. And he says, no, no. How could I? How does how does he withstand the day in and day out temptation of Potiphar's wife? And, and this is how he says, how could I do this disobedience and sin against God? How could I do this wicked thing thing? 
So the way he keeps himself pure, the way he resists temptation, is he holds in front of himself the faithfulness of God. He recognizes that every sin isn't just a sin against another human being. It wouldn't just be a sin against Potiphar to sleep with his wife. It would be a sin against God, the God who's called him, the God who loves him, the God who's promised to be faithful to him. And so because he's holding that up in his mind, he's able to say no to the things that threaten his faithfulness to God. And so she tries one final time to coerce him. And then in her shame and her fear, because I think she's thinking, I mean, Joseph's naked now. I have his clothes. He's probably there's evidence that I did something or that we were together. So she just decides she's going to concoct the story. And so she lies about Joseph and he's thrown into the royal prison. And while Genesis doesn't go into the detail right here of what it was like for Joseph to be thrown in prison, uh, Psalm 105 does. It talks about the story of Joseph in uh, a little more detail in parts. And this is what it says in verse 18 in Psalm 105 of Joseph. It says, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what the Lord said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested Joseph. So Joseph experienced great pain, great suffering. I mean, it it wasn't a cakewalk to be thrown in prison in ancient Egypt. Probably he was tortured. Probably he suffered a great deal. But here's the amazing thing. Is at this point, in the midst of his pain, it also says that God was with Joseph. At this point in the text, we're reading this and we should be outraged, right? We should say, Joseph hasn't done anything wrong. He's never sinned. As far as we can tell, he hasn't been disobedient. Or, you know, he, God, he's done everything right. He's crossed all his, his T's and he's dotted all his I's. God, you owe him. This shouldn't happen. Joseph might even think that he should say that, right? God, I try to be faithful to you. I've done everything. And you could... You maybe wouldn't even blame Joseph for for forsaking God at that moment. But he doesn't. Joseph keeps tracking with the Lord because it says the Lord was with Joseph. And he was with Joseph in a special way, in a special way that Joseph didn't experience in his prosperity. In his pain, he gets something from the Lord that he didn't have before. And what is that? It says... He shows him his steadfast love in verse 21. God shows Joseph while he's in the midst of pain, while he's in the midst of prison, God was with Joseph and he showed him his steadfast love. Now, steadfast love in the Bible, if you read in the Psalms, if you read when people speak about God's steadfast love, it's this special kind of covenant blessing that comes from the Lord. It's the special love that you only experience in the midst of pain. It's like a, a beautiful flower that only grows in a really, really dry desert. It's this special gift from the Lord that he gives to his people when they're really, really troubled. And, and you know that don't you i mean the the people who have a real deep special sense of god's love that you go i think they know god in like a really special way most of the time they're they're people who have really suffered they're people who have really experienced some pain and they've experienced something special 
from the Lord as a result of the struggle, as a result of the pain, as a result of the trial. And they've experienced his steadfast love, his faithful covenant love. And so what we see here with Joseph in prison is not only is God powerful, not only is he able to uh, ordain all these uh, events and circumstances to bring about his will, not only is he powerful, he's also personal. He's also interested in comforting Joseph when he needs comfort. And you see this image of God throughout the whole Bible, don't you? What does it say of uh, the Israelites when they were in Egypt? It says in Exodus 2.24, it says, When they were in slavery, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. He saw the people, and then it says these two amazing words, God knew. God knew in this special way that we can't even comprehend what was going on in the hearts of his people. And when they cried out to him, he listened. And later, you know, in the life of Jesus, what what did we say? Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man familiar with suffering. When his friend Lazarus was dying, he goes over to the house. Mary and Martha are weeping. All these mourners are weeping. And what does Jesus do? He's moved. It says he moved within the depths of his soul and he and he weeps. Jesus weeps. God in the flesh weeps. That's the kind of God that we have. A God that weeps with his people, a God that listens to his people, a God that remains with his people in the midst of pain. Even a God who knows pain, who knows our pain in a way that we could never even imagine. The Bible says especially that if you've been united with Christ, if you believe in Christ, that all the payment for your sin, all the suffering that was owed to you, fell on him. So that as the Puritans used to say, that any suffering we experience is just chips off the cross. Now the chips might be painful, but they're not the whole cross. You don't want to carry the whole cross. You just get the splinters. So we have a God who knows us, who walks with us, who remains with us in the middle of pain and trial and suffering. And so you've got to ask the question, if suffering grieves God, if suffering moves God, if God isn't happy about suffering, why does he allow it? And that is like the $2 million question. And that could take a hundred sermons to answer and people way wiser than I have tried to answer that before. But I think just in Joseph's story, you can get a little bit of a picture of an answer why. So why is God allowing Joseph to go through pain? It's because he's preserving him, he's preparing him, and he's positioning him for something greater. When you see throughout the whole Bible that when God allows suffering to come into the lives of his people, he's only doing it for your good and for his glory. The psalm says that that he only afflicts us in faithfulness. That if he brings any pain into your life, as as your covenant Lord, he's doing that as a result of his faithfulness to you. And so you look at Joseph, all the painful events of his life, they start to work together. And when you look back at it, it all makes sense. You go, yeah, Joseph was thrown in prison. Well, Joseph was 
in Potiphar's house. Well, he, and he wasn't just a slave that was in the field. He was a slave in the house so he could get noticed by Potiphar. Well, that's amazing. What a coincidence. Well, and then Joseph just got noticed and then he got advanced and then he, he learned all the customs of Egyptian households. So then when he was thrown in prison later, by the way, in the royal prison where he could interact with the with Pharaoh's prisoners, he had a chance to rise out of prison and then become the right hand man of Pharaoh, which is what we're going to find out about next week. But so all these circumstances work together and you just think, wow, what a remarkable coincidence. All this bad stuff worked out for good. And as Christians, we, just, we don't believe in coincidence, do we? There's a word for it. It's called providence. God is ordaining everything that comes to pass. And so all of these things are working together. At every step, Joseph learns something that is going to serve him later in his journey. It's like God was putting Joseph through this school, preparing him, fitting him, positioning him. For a purpose that was way beyond anything that he could have asked or imagined. And doesn't just bless him, it ends up blessing everyone in the known universe. And really saving all of God's people. C.S. Lewis has this really amazing picture of uh, what it feels like sometimes to go through suffering. He, was, he wrote a whole book about suffering. And he says, sometimes, you know, it feels like God is just working on you, doesn't it? I mean, he's laboring, laboring over you like an artist uh, works over a painting. But you can, can you imagine how it must feel for the painting to be worked over by the artist, to be painted on and then painted again and then kind of flipped and stretched on the canvas and then all this stuff done to it and, you know, just just paint layered on and, and stuff etched out. And you, you, if you were the painting, you'd be like, hey, just be done with me. <laughs> leave me alone. But Lewis says, if you did that to God, if you said, God, just leave me alone, you'd be asking for less love, not more. Because when he really loves you, when he really cares about you, in his faithfulness, he's going to sanctify you. He's going to prepare you for something greater. So the question that I have for you is when you're suffering, when you're in pain, what do you do? When you're suffering, I know the temptation is because I feel it myself. You either want to forget God or you just want to ask to be delivered from suffering. God, just take it away. God, there's this painful thing. There's this annoying person. God, there's this situation that it just, it just eats at me. God, will you just take it away? Heal me. Make it better. But instead of praying for deliverance, what I want to ask of you, just try this out. Instead of thinking about deliverance, think about your duty. Think about what does God require of me in this situation? Rather than just being asked to be, you know, uh, ejected out of it, ask God, what do you want me to do in the midst of it? What do you want me to learn? How can I obey you in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this trial, with everything that you've brought in this situation? How do we do that? I mean, how do you get the strength to remain with God, to not forsake him when it feels like he's forsaking you? You've got to remember his promises. 
you got to remember his love. You got to do what Joseph did. You remember the covenant promises of the Lord. Now, we just don't have the old covenant promises of the Lord that Joseph had, the promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have a new and better covenant, a covenant made to Jesus. And we have a sign of the covenant, don't we? We have uh, Jesus' blood, Jesus' body broken for us. We have a reminder of his faithfulness. We have an empty tomb to remind that the covenant stands That he has the power to do what he said. That he is faithful. And that he will uphold his people. And above all else, that even the worst things in human history, the most horrible, painful events, will work out for good. So Christ Community Church, visitors, friends, brothers and sisters, hold on to God. Ask him to remain with you. Fight to hold on to him. And learn to treasure the truth that God is with us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for all your promises. Thank you that best of all, you are with us. I pray for my friends here. Lord, that in their prosperity, in their pain, Lord, they could see your hand moving behind the scenes. That in some way that the, the story of your servant Joseph might uh, be an encouragement, might shine a light on a situation that they're going through. Lord, we thank you for all the gifts you give. We thank you that you do know how to good, give uh, good gifts to your children. And now, Lord... Uh, We pray that you would receive our gifts and our offerings to you. In Jesus' name.